peace? It's a question I ask you. If you could picture someone in your mind who would be the most person who's most at peace, is that person you right now? I have one nod. That's good. That's good. Um, we are in a time of global unrest, political militants, civil turbulence, radical gender theory, the constant push towards division, massive government debt, cost of living pressures, ideological conflicts, you name it, we're all facing it, and it doesn't seem like a very peaceful existence. Do you have peace? It's a challenge though, isn't it? Because these things keep pushing us down and they keep just weighing upon us. Every time you go to the supermarket, you're like, really? It's that much? I'm sure that it's more than last week. The pressures we face tend to take our peace away. But in the heart of our passage today in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 to 22, lies a profound message of unity, reconciliation, hope, yes, and peace. This passage paints a, visit, a vivid picture of how God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, bridged the gap between diverse believers being the peace. Being the peace. Did you get that? Being the peace that brought them together in a new creation, the church. This passage offers insights on how we can personally apply those teachings as well in our lives and foster unity and share the message of peace and hope with our world. Does it sound like something we need right now? It sure does to me. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles or your app, jump into the passage and uh, as we begin, let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that our hearts would be responsive um, to what you're trying to teach us and we would also retain the, the, the messages of hope and peace that you have for us this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, we wouldn't just feel good about this sermon today uh, because it's been an encouragement to us, but Lord, it would actually change the way we live our lives from this point onwards. Lord, may your word change us, we ask by the power of your spirit. Amen. So verse 11 starts, Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That, that's not a very peaceful place to begin, is it? So whenever you see a passage that starts with therefore, what's the question you ask? What's the therefore, therefore? That's right. So this follows on from last week, which was because we were dead but are now alive in Christ, because by grace we have been saved, because of God's immeasurable riches in grace and kindness to us, because we are his workmanship, this is all what we covered last week, therefore, 
Remember that we were in the flesh. Remember that we were separated from God. We were alienated. We were cut off from God's people and strangers to his law and promises. We had no hope without God. Several famous people were asked what they felt was the saddest word in the English language. And here's what some of them said. Poet T.S. Eliot said, the saddest word in the English language is, of course, saddest. Lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II said, but. Writer John Dos Passos quoted John Keats, forlorn, the very word is like a bell. Psychiatrist Carl Menninger said, unloved. Statesman Bernard M. Barak said, hopeless. President Harry Truman quoted John Greenleaf Whittier, for of all sad words of the tongue or pen, the saddest of these, it might have been. Alexandra Tolstoy, the saddest word in all languages which has brought the world to its present condition is atheism. Put all these answers together and you have a faint picture of a soul without Christ. I think of that word which Keats used so dramatically, forlorn. It is the English form of the Dutch word verloren, which means lost. But I think in this passage, Paul gives the ultimate description, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. As Gentile believers, this was our position. Even though we've been changed by God, as we saw last week, Paul highlights things that we did not have as people who were not Jewish. Paul gives us, in fact, 12, um, in verse 12, he gives us five privileges that Gentile believers did not enjoy because Jewish, because we weren't Jewish. Jesus, uh, Jewish believers um, did enjoy before the cross, he, th- these, these five things. First of all, Gentile believers were separate from Christ, the Messiah. We had no corporate national hope centred in a Messiah as the Jews did. Secondly, God excluded Gentiles as a people from citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel. Individual Gentiles could become members of the nation of Israel, but as a whole, the Gentiles had no part in what God planned to do in and through Israel. The Gentiles were aliens from Israel in this sense. And remember that we have Jews and everybody else is considered Gentile, right? So that's... Who here is a Gentile? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, is, this was us, right? Um, third... They had no direct part in the promises of God to Israel contained in the biblical covenants God made with Abraham, Moses and David. And fourth, as a race of people, the Gentiles had no corporate future promised by God to which we could look and in which we could hope as Israel did. And fifth, we were without hope. They were godless and without God's special help. In contrast, God had reached out to Israel and drawn her to himself. 
And this created quite the cultural divide. And in a real sense, a culture of superiority of the Jews towards everyone else was established by this. They were God's special chosen nation and no one else was. And so they had this air of superiority about them. William Barclay gives some insight into this reality as he writes, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. So that's the Gentiles. The Jews said that the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. The best of the serpents crush, they said, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. This is the culture in which Jesus stepped into humanity in. This was the culture that was Jews towards Gentiles. And even today, some strict Jews still despise Gentiles. Jewish hostility towards Gentiles carried over into the early church to some extent. And Jewish Christians tended to look down on Gentile Christians. This was our position. But, verse 13, but now, right, since Christ's death and resurrection, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. But, which began verse 13, but, this points to a great contrast. Because of Christ's death, that is his blood, God has brought us Gentiles near to himself and to the Jews, in a sense, never before true. See, there's obvious continuity between the redeemed people of God in the Old Testament and the redeemed people of God in the New Testament. However, Paul stresses here the differences between these two groups. So some believe there's no difference between God's people in the Old Testament and the New. That's what's called covenant theology. Dispensational theology 
however, highlights the differences between Israel and the church. And here, Paul makes it very difficult for us to say that Israel and the church are the same thing. Paul didn't see them as the same. He saw them as different. And so that's why I more of a, a, err on the dispensational side of theology and sort of reject covenant theology, mainly because of this verse. See, there is still a role to come for Israel. That role is separate to the church. And this distinction matters because God has made some very specific promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Those promises are not just to be transported to us in the church today and claimed as promises to us because they are promises God made to Israel. The church is not Israel. But Christ has done something amazing. Jesus Christ's death has resulted in peace between Gentile believers and Jewish believers and peace between Gentile believers and God. New spiritual life does not just mean that we have experienced regeneration individually. God brings every Christian into union with every other Christian. In Christ, we have solidarity with other believers as well as solidarity with our triune God. See, this passage is a strong testimony to the fact that with the death of Jesus Christ, God began dealing with humankind on a different basis than he had ever done in the past. He had stopped now working with and through the Jews and Judaism primarily. Instead, he began dealing with Jews and Gentiles on the same basis, faith in his Son. In other words, he began a new way of dealing with humanity. But he still has promises that he has made to Israel which have not yet been fulfilled and because they're promises of God, what do we know? He will fulfill them. Many Jews have yet to come to know Jesus by faith as their Messiah. And I believe that will happen because Scripture tells us. So when verse 14 says, Christ is our peace, it means that Jesus is the source of restored relationships, not only between an individual and God, but also between individuals. Now people form a new community, the household of God, which itself is compared to a holy temple, a sacred work of God. See, there is unity between all people through the peace of Christ, which restores relationships. How can we all get along with our different backgrounds and upbringings and political and theological nuances? Through the peace of Christ which is the source of restored relationships. Jesus brings us peace and unity. And can I tell you something on the unity we have through the peace of Christ? Forgiveness is a massive basis for this. Our Bible study group this week 
was looking at forgiveness as we're going through a series called The Bait of Satan. It is a fantastic series. Um, a bit American, so you get over those sorts of things. There's nuances there that, you know, we know. Um, but I would encourage you, if you have not read the book or done the series, then do it. It is free and it is online. It is excellent teaching on understanding the importance of forgiveness as the source of peace and freedom, especially when an offence has occurred. This passage shows us that Jesus has bought us peace with his blood. And his blood bought us forgiveness. And so out of our forgiveness that we have experienced from God through the blood of Christ, out of that forgiveness, we can forgive others. And in fact, what Scripture teaches us is if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. That's pretty serious, isn't it? It's not a try and forgive and you'll be forgiven. It is forgive as because you have been forgiven. There's no option to not forgive. Harboring unforgiveness is not healthy. If someone has a, a committed an offence against us, has sinned against us, and yet they're completely oblivious and they're off fine, yet we're harboring unforgiveness, who's the person suffering? Yeah, we are, because we're harboring unforgiveness. Yet we're told clearly from Scripture, forgive because you've been forgiven. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. It's really clear. And that's a challenge, isn't it? See, the Mosaic Law... Oh, no, I need to go back a bit. The body of Jesus, his flesh, sacrificed on the cross, terminated the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It did so in the sense that when Jesus died, he fulfilled all the demands of Mosaic law. When he did that, God ended the law of Moses and ended his rules for the life for the Jews. See, there's a Greek word used here called kataresis, which has been translated abolished. It means rendered inoperative. The Mosaic law ceased to be God's standard for regulating the life of his people when Christ died. That's why we no longer have to observe all the ritual law of Moses and the temple because it was fulfilled with the death of Jesus. Fulfilled, finished, over. And so the Mosaic law had been the cause of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Its dietary distinctions and laws requiring separation and, 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 and you know, being separate from other people those had in particular created hostility between Jews and Gentiles. The law was a barrier. The law was the cause of the spiritual barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus Christ broke down that spiritual barrier 
and the hostility that resulted from it by terminating the Mosaic law. And Jesus Christ had two purposes in ending the hostility. First, he wanted to create one new entity, the church, out of members of the two former groups, Jews and Gentiles. The new man that Paul writes of isn't the new individual, it's the new body of Christ, the church. In the church, God does not deal with Gentiles as he did with Jews, nor does he deal with Jews as he did with Gentiles. Jews do not become Gentiles, nor do Gentiles become Jews in the church. God has rather created a whole new, literally fresh entity, the church. In the church, believing Jews are Christians and believing Gentiles are also Christians. God now deals with both believing Jews and believing Gentiles equally as Christians. Jesus Christ's second purpose for ending this hostility between Jews and Gentiles was to reconcile Jewish and Gentile believers to himself in that one body, the church. Not only have Jews and Gentiles experienced reconciliation with one another, but we've also experienced reconciliation with God by the cross. The cross satisfied God's justice. Let me tell you something. That was a radical cultural change like you've never seen before because it had never existed before God brought it into being. The very concept hadn't existed until this point. Up until this point in human history, since the separation of language, human existence was tribe against tribe, nation against nation, people against people. The Babylonians, they came up with a method of trying to homogenize culture to create one culture where when they conquered a land, they would take all the people from that land and then they would disperse them in all the areas of the kingdom that they ruled, of their empire. And then they would replace from others into that land. And they'd try and take just the best of each culture and add it into the mix, this plethora of this big culture, right? That was an, a homogenization attempt to try and break down those barriers of culture that existed. But it wasn't successful though as people maintained their cultural identities, where they were placed in those new places. Yeah, the death of Jesus on the cross was so radical because it created something brand new, a concept never experienced before. Reconciliation in a new entity, the church. We are citizens of a new kingdom reality. We are reconciled together out of our past and now in the present are the church. We are reconciled to God and to each other through the cross. Unity, peace, identity, citizenship, all found in Jesus. And the reason why there's so much strife in this world between individuals, families, social, political groups, whether small or large, is that the contending parties, through the fault of either or both, have not found each other at the cross of Christ. 
Only then, when sinners have been reconciled to God through the cross, can we truly be reconciled to each other. Lord, I pray that all the conflict the world is experiencing right now would bring people to faith in Jesus, the only fountain where true reconciliation springs forth. Lord, may you quench this earth with your true justice and mercy and bring peace. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So not only is Jesus Christ our peace, he also preached peace and he kept preaching the message of peace, the gospel in person, and through his spirit-empowered apostles, following his ascension to both Gentiles and Jews. We need to keep hearing the message of peace from Jesus. Would he preach it anew today? Christ preached peace, he made peace, and he is our peace. And as a result of the cross, we all have access to God the Father. See, formerly access to God was only through Judaism, but now it is through Christ by the Holy Spirit. As a result of Christ's death, all of us, all of us believers, now have direct access to the Father. The Holy Spirit gives Jewish and Gentile Christians equal access to God. So when someone tries to say that your access to God is through someone or something else, you can confidently know that they are not speaking the truth. You have direct access to God the Father through the indwelling Holy Spirit made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. You don't need a priest, a pastor or a prophet to speak to God for you. You can do that yourself directly. This is one of the things I hate about religion. And I think I can put Catholicism in there, is that everything relies upon a priest or prophet or a pope. Yet all believers, we all have direct access to God ourselves. My prayer is no different to your prayer. God hears them all and acts upon them in his sovereignty the same. This is the priesthood of all believers, right? That's all of us. If you need prayer for healing or deliverance or anything else that is troubling you, then we should be asking as many people as we know to pray about our situation because we all have access to God by the Spirit through Christ. How precious that this verse so clearly outlines for us the access we have to our triune God and the unit we all have in our common standing before God. And so, so then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So because we are one in Christ as the church, we as Gentile believers, which we now call Christians, are no longer strangers 
and foreigners in relation to Jewish believers as, the, as we once were. Christians are now fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, we are now citizens of the same heavenly homeland as Jewish believers. To change the figure, Gentile believers are now members of the same household as Jewish believers. The key to our union is our common faith in Christ. We now share in the same inheritance through faith in Christ. This household rests on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See, they did the foundational work in preparing for and establishing the church. In practical terms, this means that the church is built on the New Testament scriptures. This is why we don't observe Jewish customs they have been completed in the death of Christ on the cross. And so the church is the new expression of our new relationship with God through faith in Jesus. You know, at the, the time that Paul wrote this passage, the cornerstone was the crucial part of the foundation of the building. It was the stone with which the builder squared up every other stone, including other foundation stones. This stone is Christ. This stone in that culture was considered even more important than the foundation. And so, in addition to describing the church as a household, Paul also viewed it as a, and pictured it as a building under construction with God adding new believers like stones constantly. It's still under construction. The individual stones represent believers, both Jewish and Gentiles. Today, God does not inhabit a physical temple somewhere on earth as he did in the Old Testament times. He indwells his church. Who, who, what, what is his church? Yeah, it's us believers, isn't it? It's not a building. It's us, the church. And so he indwells his church, which is a spiritual and holy temple spread out over all the earth. It began on the day of Pentecost and it will continue until the rapture. And as physical temples glorified the gods that they represented in ancient times, so the church glorifies the one true God today. You know, and the reason that Paul uses the illustration of a temple here is quite relevant to the Ephesians. You see, Ephesus was home to the Temple of Artemis, a very famous and imposing structure in the city. It was built similarly to the Parthenon in Greece, which still stands in Athens today, yet was four times larger. Has anyone seen the Parthenon in Greece? Anyone been there? There's a, a few hands. Is it massive? Is it towering and like a very imposing structure over the whole city of Athens? You can basically see it from everywhere, right? Can't you? Pretty much. Yeah. It's this big domineering cultural landscape architecture piece, right? There was one four times larger than this in Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis. It had 127 white marble columns which rose 60 feet in the air, more than 18 metres. And they surrounded an image of the goddess Artemis. 
historians still regard the Temple of Artemis as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was burnt and destroyed, though, as a lot of ancient things go. But with this imposing structure in their city and a full understanding of the importance of this temple in the city's culture, Paul connects the glorious holy temple of the Lord with the imagery of their city. And at that time, most cities had something like that. That was the culture. And if Paul were writing here in Wangaratta today, writing to us here in Wangaratta, maybe he would have drawn on the imagery of two rivers, which dominate our landscape, albeit in a very different way. In fact, those two rivers could even form a close analogy of the two becoming one at the point where the rivers meet. Except the river analogy falls down as the King River becomes the ovens. It doesn't become a new river at that point. That's where the analogy falls down. It does hold, hold up, however, in being grafted into the inheritance though. We are as individuals members of the household of God and together we are the temple of the Lord. And this passage finishes verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the church universal. And of course, he also indwells each and every one of us individually. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul refers to individual believers as a temple. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he also refers uh, to the local Christian congregation as a temple. However, here he revealed that all Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, are part of one great holy temple, the church universal. So Israel had a, a building in which God was pleased to dwell. We are now the building that God is pleased to dwell. And so God's presence is now dispersed in every member of the universal church, not localised like it was in Solomon's temple. God's presence is incarnated, not confined behind a curtain. It's on display and active in our world through us as bringers of hope. Where we go, we take the presence of God because He dwells within us. And as such, we are the church, the holy temple of God. And so from this passage today, we've seen that God's plan for individual believers included the creation of a new entity after Jesus Christ's death, resurrection and ascension and that new entity is the church. The church is not just a continuation and modernization of Israel under a new name, but it is a new creation. In the church, Jewish and Gentile believers stand with equal rights and privileges before God. Membership in this new body is one of the greatest blessings of believers in our present age, along with our individual blessings that we receive. And Paul gives glory to God for blessing the church and the blessing of the church. John Stott wrote, 
I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honour of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it, is, it already is, a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other, the evident dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Only then will the world believe in Christ as peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory due to His name. So does this describe us as a church? Are we a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other? Is it evident that we are the dwelling place of God by His Spirit? See, this is what Paul calls us to be as a church. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of us as ambassadors of Christ, carriers of the very nature of Christ, emissaries of His kingdom. See, where people encounter us, they encounter God. That's a pretty daunting thought though, isn't it? But it's also a thought that is so full of hope. See, if it was up to me though, my effort and my strength, I'm not sure I could ever live up to that calling. But I'm really glad that it's not up to me. Because I have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is my helper, who helps me to do it. And guess what? I'm not alone in that. You also receive the Spirit at the moment that you believed upon Christ for your salvation. And it's something we can continually be asking, Lord, fill me with your Spirit to help enable me to be your presence wherever you send me. We have the full resources of our triune God at our disposal to fulfill our calling as the church, to bring the hope of the gospel, to share the joy of Christ, to be the presence of Jesus, to share his love and light in our world, to introduce people to Jesus so they might experience his peace, to walk in unity as reconciled brothers and sisters by the peace of Christ. So might I encourage you to put this message in place in two ways and hopefully maybe more, but at least I've got two for you today. First of all, Embrace and promote unity. Actively seek opportunities to build bridges and promote unity within our local church family. And learn from the experiences and perspectives of fellow believers from different backgrounds. Encourage and participate in efforts to break down barriers or prejudices that might still exist among Christians just as Paul addressed the cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. That's application one, embrace and promote unity. Secondly, share the message of peace. Take the message of peace, reconciliation and unity outside of our church family by being a living example of peace and unity that can be achieved through faith in Christ. Live out the principles of reconciliation and unity in your daily life and let your actions speak louder than your words. See, I would also add to that that forgiveness 
is where reconciliation begins. Christ's forgiveness of us is how that began, so we can also forgive others. Sharing the message of peace that we have in Christ is to also participate in that peace through forgiveness. And so may we actively foster unity within our church community, share the message of peace, reconciliation and forgiveness with the world. And this not only honours God, but it brings hope to the world around us. So how can you bring hope through the peace of Christ in your week ahead? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the peace that we have in Christ Jesus. That, Lord, we are no longer separated by heritage or separated by any other means. But, Lord, we are one in Christ Jesus. And that you have made us something new, completely new that never existed before. Lord, you have made us the church. You have made us Christians. We are no longer Jews or Gentiles. We are Christians. We are united by Jesus Christ, your Son, whom, Lord, you loved so much that you gave him to us to be that sacrifice which fulfilled the Old Testament law. And, Lord, you've given us a new way to live. Lord, may we live up to that calling as your church to be a message of hope. Lord, may we continue to embrace unity and promote unity amongst us as, as fellow believers from a diverse background of nations, of, of pol- politics, of, of education, of, of, of everything, Lord. We're so diverse in our background. But Lord, we are unified by Christ. So may we walk in that strength and unity that is in you. And Lord, may we also share the message of peace that we have. And maybe that starts with our forgiveness towards others. Lord, we've all been hurt. And the sad reality is that hurt people hurt people. But Lord, may healing and peace come upon us as we experience your forgiveness and so also forgive others as we have been forgiven and may that bring freedom in our lives and may it bring peace and hope and unity we pray amen